Good morning, Grace. We had a great time today planned for you. We're going to uh, learn some things out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, I'll, we'll, we'll be there in just a second. I wanted to announce uh, something that happened this week. Uh, based on the theme of I'm just the pastor and you guys are the, you're the ministers. And so uh, we didn't know what we could do. The pastors didn't know what we could do about helping uh, the people in Ukraine suffering from the evil that they're experiencing at the hands of, of Russia. So guess what? The, the ministers, the members were contacted and some of those people that have uh, friends and family in Ukraine, they are formerly from the Ukraine. They knew people uh, that were fleeing to Poland and, and ran into a church there that they're associated with and do, doing their very best job to help those refugees. And so because of that contact and we validated, you know, the, the, you know it's a good investment. Our church, you guys gave $15,000 to this church in Poland. The, yeah, the pastor would like to thank you. So here's a, here's a recording that he sent to us this week. Hi, we are in Kraków, south of Poland. My name is Wojtek Włoch. I am a pastor of a local church in Kraków and a national, national overseer of our movement. We meet here with Ukrainian pastors today to talk what we can do, how we can manage the, this big crisis. The last seven days, more than 600,000 Ukrainian refugees cross our border and we try to find the best way how we can serve them. There is a really, really big challenge for us and we like to use all the best way, all of our resources we have to help them. And we are so thankful for the people like you who be with us, who join us, and who help us to help these people. And it's a really, really a big, big challenge for all of us. And, and I really thank you so much for your generosity, Grace Covenant Church. We are really feel that you trust us, you are with us, you help us, and with you, with your help, we can do much, much, much more. Thank you very much, and God bless you. So we'll continue to look at what we can do from this distance and, and would love the help of our ministers to do that. I think Samaritan's Purse, an enormous, beautiful organization, uh, is doing is sending giant planes over there to help as well. But what? Um, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up uh, the violation of innocence that's taking place at the hands of evil. It seems very clear at this point anyway. And, and we'd ask that you would protect those people as they run to Poland and other places so that they might find refuge. And as a God who turns graveyards into gardens and crucifixions into resurrections, we're asking that you uh, would make your presence known to people. Maybe, maybe come to a knowledge of who you are and, and that Jesus Christ died for them and was raised so that they might have eternity. Lord, I'd ask that you would cause this, uh, this war to end quickly and famously. I would love for your name to be praised in the way uh, this violence comes to an end. And I'd ask that you would bless this church that we're helping and, and other churches as well, that the church itself in Europe would show itself to be everything you would ever want her to be as a, a refuge and a resource for people's health and well-being. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we go. First Corinthians. Chapter five, the first two sentences start like this. 
It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and, and you are arrogant. Uh, you know, ought you not rather mourn for this? In other words, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So there, yeah. uh, I don't know where to start. Let me try to explain, because it's going to get harsher from here. The accusation itself, to be clear, is, you know, Corinth is a sexually, uh, sexual, sexual immorality is rampant in that culture. That was the way the city was, like, begun in many respects. But even this expression of sexual immorality was a violation of even pagan standards. And, and not only that, it's, it's, it's present tense. The verb that's being used there in Greek means, uh, you know, sleeping with his, his stepmother is in the present tense, which means it's continuing to act to take place. And then if that weren't bad enough, and this is what Paul gets especially angry about, is that they're boasting about it. They're, they're bragging about it. And so for us to grasp and un- maybe kind of try to understand how a Christian church in Corinth could be doing such things, let me just, part one of our learning time together is just to explain the culture and the circumstances so that we might be able to grasp what's happening then, but actually it's going to help us understand how it happens here and now. So how did it happen then and there, and how come Corinth seems so very close to Austin, Texas? The first aspect we need to understand is is what Tim Keller calls the difference between uh, living church problems and dying church problems, okay? So living church problems, that comes with a set of problems. And reaching people outside of the church that have no church experience whatsoever, that are just coming off or even coming from an anti-church background, that's going to be a mixed group of people. And so they're going to come from various political lines and philosophies. And so we're going to have some kind of messy political speech about that. If a church is doing its job, it's crossing ethnic uh, boundaries. And because of that, we have ethnic preferences and cultural classes, clashes that take place, which that's one of the problems that a living church would have. Uh, sometimes when you're, when you're reaching out to other people, it's, you're going against socioeconomic uh, strata. And so we have different kind of values of what the purpose of money is or preferences in, in that way. But I mean, the point is that when people come in, you know, off the street, like not inside the Christian church, they have no experience. They don't know how to act. They don't know how to talk. They're just learning. And while they are, it can get messy. Those are living church problems. Now in a dying church, a dying church has problems too. So generally, a lot of times, a dying church is, yeah, they're probably from the same political party. So that makes it easy. Oftentimes, it's probably the same ethnic group. So look, we all get along and like the same food. Generally speaking, it's also the same, you know, income levels. So we vacation similarly. So while there doesn't seem to be a lot of problems, the bigger problem was this. If you think the same and you act the same and you vote the same, and you're Christians, you're, you're actually, you're, you're, you're not really a church. You're just a dying Christian country club. It's just, you're just waiting for people. It's just a, it's, a, it's a string of funerals. That's all that's happening there. So the first part of it is, is what kind of church do you want to be part of? And what kind of problems are you going to have? I want us to be a living church. 
with living church problems. And this is one of those living church problems. And with Corinth, there's gonna be a lot of that. <laughs> and it's gonna be ugly. Corinth is this strategic city that's you know, located you know, geographically so that there's a lot of tourists, there's a lot of people coming in and leaving from all over the world. People there are just drunk on ambition. They are clawing their way to the top. They'll do whatever it takes to get there. They are consumed with status and, and wealth and fame. It's an honor-shame culture. It's an, kind of an Eastern view of that, and that sounds a little bit like Austin, sure. Then the idea of it's a very sensual culture. There, again, people from all over, nobody has any real rules about sexual boundaries. And as a matter of fact, three chapters, five, six, and seven, are dedicated uh, to sexual ethics because they don't understand even the anthropology of, of sex. And so they're violating those rules and regulations that are found in the Bible that <laughs> we do in Austin as well. And then they're status obsessed. They just, they love famous people or wealthy people or wanna be them or be known by them or be like them, whatever it might be. And if you're thinking that's not here, I gotta tell you, I, I mean, I've, I've been in this auditorium when we had, you know, a, a, a governor or a celebrity of some so kind uh, in, in film or a professional athlete. And I'm like, oh gosh, let's just see how this happens. Sure enough, people are flocking around that person literally getting their autograph in church. Really? Leave them alone. Uh, but when I was thinking about this, I thought, okay, let's just use an example. And I got to use someone that's, that's gone and deceased or else it wouldn't be fair and word would get out. Okay. So it's, if Elizabeth Taylor went here and she was a member here, okay, Elizabeth Taylor, how long would it be before we would, you or me, we would just like, that would, that would just kind of come out in a conversation you know, in the neighborhood or in the grocery line or somewhere we, at work where we hang out. Oh, yeah, you know, I was uh, at a Bible study with Liz Taylor. Liz, oh, you call her Liz. Well, yeah, I was in a Bible study with her. You're a guy. What are you doing in a girl, woman's Bible study? <laughs> Just, you're missing the point. She goes to our church, okay? And then, then they would say, well, wait a minute. Isn't, isn't she like cheating on her fourth husband with another woman's husband? Yeah, but it's Elizabeth Taylor and she goes to our church. So that's what's happening. And I don't think that's far from what could happen right now, honestly. So you kind of have, and then, and then you have that shame, honor, culture, you know, identity thing. So you, you add those together and boom, that's how you end up bragging about someone who <laughs> is sleeping with their stepmother. Because you're asking, you're asking people in the church to go confront Elizabeth Taylor and shame her in front of others? Uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. And so in summary, because of the culture and the, and the, the, the honor, shame, the, the sexual ethics having act, almost no boundaries and this famous person committing this despicable you know, uh, uh, sin, Paul is outraged, but he's, he's doubly outraged. And frankly, you know, not just about the sin itself, but the fact that the, the Corinthian church is bragging about it. He's going to spend more time talking about that. And the reason is, is because Paul is more concerned. This is Paul's concern. Paul is concerned with the holiness of the, of the bride of Jesus Christ, not upsetting a person of influence. 
He, he is, he's focused on the integrity of Jesus Christ's church and couldn't care less about these other things. And he's wondering, why don't you mourn for this? Why, and mourn like you're going to a, a funeral weeping. Why aren't you crying like as to a funeral towards this imp- important person and, and doing what you can to make things right? And so this is the context of the most important passage in the Bible talking about church discipline. And that's the subject, church discipline. And the key factors here are, you know, first of all, one is that the, there's this treasured member of the church. And the other factor is, is this, this lifestyle of sin, those two things. And he addresses those. And the first one is this, this person of, of notoriety. And Paul doesn't care about notoriety. It, it, it's, there's, there's no favoritism. It doesn't matter if the person is wealthy or famous or your friend. As a matter of fact, if they're your real friend, you do something about this. This is what love means. And then in the context of this kind of sin, this is important to know, is I mentioned it was continual sin, but it's, it's more descriptive to look at the Older Testament describing this sort of activity. They, they call it, it's a picture of high-handed sin. So when, when the Older Testament talks about this kind, it, it's talking about raising your fist to God saying, you know, you tell me not to do this, but I'm going to do this and maybe even extend a finger towards God. Some of you with Catholic backgrounds, this is what a mortal sin is as opposed to a venial sin, I think, if I remember that right. But, but Paul is saying, look, you need to treat sin the way, tri- the way sin is treating you. I mean, you guys are being playful with these things and it's disastrous. You need, sin is ruthless and it's out to destroy you. So you need to be ruthless and out to destroy sin in your own life and in the congregation. And just to be clear, everyone in the church was a sinner. Wait, everyone in the church is a sinner. But Paul, that's not, it's not the sin that he's talking about. It's this high-handed, unrepentant, con, you know, continual sin. And, and repentance is not, it's, it's not just acknowledging the sin. It's acknowledging it and saying, I will change my ways. I'll do what I need to for a life change. And so this person has no intention of repenting, no intention of changing. And so Paul says, remove them from your midst. They need to stay away. Now, in the second part, what I'm looking at now is like, how did it happen now? What do we do about it? And when we look at this, you're going to find that this is not an easy thing to do. There's pain and there's anguish in the people that care enough to do something about it. There is a bounty of misunderstanding and accusations that will be pointed towards the people in leadership and the people trying to get something done right here. Generally speaking, especially nowadays, the person that it's the offender plays the victim and gets the word out that I'm getting picked on and they're being mean to me. And so with all of that, why do it? I mean, why even bother doing what Paul is commanding us to do? I mean, just like, you know, just leave them to themselves and shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, but it's none of my business. In the passage, the rest of the passage, Paul's going to give us uh, four, actually four plus one, four plus one reasons why we should lean into all the pain and anguish and the misunderstandings to, to get this church right. 
First one, the first reason to do it, to do it is for the sake of the sinning brother or sister. It's for the sake of the sinning brother or sister. Look what he says in verses four and five. Now, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my, and my spirit is present as well, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Boom. That's, I don't think you could write a harder sentence right there. Remove him from the church and turn him over to Satan. First, know this, that the goal is not punishment. It's not retribution. The, the goal is, is to restore them and to, and to protect the people in the church. And Paul's goal is that this person would wake up and the church would wake up about the violence of sin on a person's soul and on a church's life itself. And it, it, hopefully by doing that, it's putting him out to a place where he's living with the consequences of his choice and he's realizing it's not worth it. I need to get back to that church. This is the very purpose of true friendships. Not, not friendships for you know, golf and that sort of thing, but they, they were talking about real deep, personal, purposeful, God-fearing friendships. It's cruel to be silent while your brother or sister is destroying their life. The, it, the, the, purpose, the purpose of true friendships is not to shrug your shoulders and not to say it's none of my business or it's not that bad. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a lot on friendship. Here's what he said in summary. Nothing can be more cruel than leniency, which abandons others to sin, to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate. That's how, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Nothing could be more compassionate than a severe reprimand. So whether it's like, oh, your zipper's down, thank you so much, that would have cost me to, if you don't get a hold of your raging anger, you will absolutely embitter your children. And if you can't control that, then you, know, you need to go to celebrate recovery or find a group of people that can help you overcome this. So Paul, is making it very clear this is what true definition of love is and this is what holiness is. It's the hatred towards sin and its effect. Now, Jesus talks about this. If you're thinking he, he doesn't, he does in Matthew chapter 18. And if you have Bibles or in your phones or wherever you wanna go over there, he just, he just writes a list of here's what to do with someone that you deeply love, truly love, not superficially, that's stuck in stubborn, painful sin. This is what he says to do, Matthew chapter 18. He says, you start here. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. It's between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. It's very clear. If your brother sins, don't tell everyone else. <laughs> don't let everybody else know. Don't consult other people for, or a lot of people for that help. You might need one person to help you, but he's just like, go to that person and tell him to stop and help him, help him get better. Here's, again, here's this theme. It's about restoration just you and him for the sake of making it easy for them to come back so that they don't have to be embarrassed that all these people know. You're, you're trying to keep it quiet. You're containing the shame. And if he repents, then you've won your brother. If he doesn't, you go to the next level. It says, but if he does not listen, 
take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So I guess in the context of our church, it'd be maybe have a conversation with some people in your home group or your service team or, or people that know this person and, and take two or three with you and say, okay, look, let's make sure, are we understanding this right? Are you, are you regularly participating in this high-handed sin and and it's like, it's none of our business sort of, yes, it is. Well, okay, then we're the three of us are gonna tell you, you have to stop that. I mean, it's assuming, using Paul's vocabulary, that your home group is mourning, grieving, like as to a funeral over your conduct and can't live with it and can't let you live with it. And if they repent, you won your brother back. But if you don't, he says, you have to do this next. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell them to the church. See the high-handed sin? I don't care what you think. You don't understand me or my household. Just leave me alone. He says, okay. Tell it, bring, bring in the leadership. Tell the church means bring in it to the leadership of the church. And our church, this would be the elders, the leaders of the church. And at that point, if they repent, you've won your brother. If you haven't, then the final step here is if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, he needs to leave the church membership. He's out of the church. In some cases, uh, he can continue to come to Sunday morning, the big church events, but he can't be part of that home group. He can't be part of the family, can't be in the communion event. He's out there. And the purpose of this goes back to 1 Corinthians 5. Remember how Paul said it. You are, you are to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. You're supposed to like out of the church so he can do whatever he wants. This idea of just let him go is, is a form of the wrath of God. In Romans chapter one, uh, it, it talks about the wrath of God and, and it says, and that God just gave them over. He just gave them over to their passions. He just let them be. And in, the, in what Peter, Paul's talking about here is just let him out of the church and he can do whatever he wants because that's the nature of hell. <laughs> C.S. Lewis writes that the very definition of hell is you can, God saying to you, you can enjoy forever the horrible freedom that you've demanded. So go. The idea of being out of the church and delivered to Satan, what that means is that the church provides a, a, like a spiritual protection over our souls. And that sometimes can mean just circumstantially and physically, but it could also mean supernaturally or, or like I said, spiritually. And being in the protective custody of the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, keeps us from various evils that we don't even know about. But when you get kicked out, when we ask people to leave, their spiral down is accelerated. So we're doing this for the sake of the sinner, to help them understand the cost of their choices and not to be able to have fellowship and continue to live this way. The second thing he says is to do it for the sake of other believers. In verses six through eight, he says, there's your boasting. See, there's your, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out the old leaven that you may have a new lump 
as, as you uh, really are unleavened. I'll explain. For, for Christ, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul, in his understanding of, of holiness, goes all the way back to the Older Testament, right? Goes back to the, the Passover. Let me quick re- remind you of that is the Passover is when Israel, not a nation, actually the Passover event is their birthday. They become a nation. And that starts with the 10th plague. And that's the promise from God through Moses that the firstborn of every male, even animals, will die this night. Unless... Unless you were to take an innocent and without blemished lamb and slaughter that lamb and then paint the doorposts outside your house and everybody stays in. So when, when judgment comes, it sees the blood of that innocent lamb and then passes over you. That's why it's called Passover. Part of that meal ritual, the Passover meal, is it begins with taking all of the leaven out of the house. And leaven, it, be, it starts here, leaven represents sin. Leaven is uh, our, our word for yeast. And so the idea is like, uh, if you don't know, leaven is like a mold. It's a chemical reaction that takes place. If you just put a little bit of this yeast in just the corner of this loaf of dough, it, it spreads and infects the entire loaf. That's why the whole loaf rises. And so now leaven, leaven or yeast is taking on this metaphor, this picture of what sin looks like. And Moses is saying, God is saying, look, you're going to be a a new nation tomorrow morning after the Passover. And let's just reboot. Let's start all over again. Let's leave all the sin behind us. And we will be unleavened bread eaters. We will be without sin. We're going to be set apart, separate, a whole new sacred nation for a purpose. It uh, figuratively, look, it, if you could look at it like this, when you like pull out a brick of cheese from the refrigerator and it's got mold around the edges, some of you would throw the whole thing away. I would just, you just cut off the mold. It's infectious, but if you don't cut off the mold, the whole cheese is lost. And so that's what, that's kind of the metaphor he's talking about. He, he this, this uh, you allowing a high handed sin by some, like, I don't know, some, Celebrity or it doesn't matter, unrepented, high-handed sin in your church, you don't think that's going to spread throughout the entire congregation? I think you're mistaken. It's going to contaminate the whole church. People are, people are going to look around and go, wait a minute, how come that person's getting away with this? Then, you know, if Elizabeth Taylor can do it, I'm going to do it. Or other believers in the church are going to say, look, if we're not going to care for each other and let this continue, I'm out. I'm going to find somewhere else to go or I'll just like start my own church or something. This is what we are calling our like culture, tough love. And boy, there, there's no better name for this type of love. It is tough and it is loving. It, it is tough on the person instituting it. It is tough on the person experiencing it. It's tough on the people that are innocent bystanders as part of it, but it's, it's how you show true love. And people, there's, there's people, if you know people that have had to institute tough love in their family or you've done that, then you get it. If you don't, if that's not part of your, it's very easy to watch from the outside and kind of judge, think that's not real love. I'm, I'm gonna try to tell you to postpone that judgment because when you've been there, 
It is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life, and it is loving. It's just tough loving. And it, it's hard in a household. It's just as difficult sometimes in a church. It goes like this. Here's a common story is a teenager or a young adult is living at home and they're starting to be in continuous you know, destructive behavior. Usually drugs are involved and it's high handed. I'm not going to stop doing this. And then usually they have questionable friends come over and join them. And the next thing you know, this is the descent into darkness. Next thing you know, there's holes in the sheetrock. There's things missing. They're stealing from their own family. And then somewhere along the line, one of the other siblings will say, mom, dad, if you don't do something about this, he's going to destroy his life or I'm going to leave. Either way, we can't keep this. And for the sake of the team that's in rebellion and for the protection of the innocent you know, siblings, the mother and the father mourn like they're going to their son's funeral because it's going to be hard to say these words. You need to leave the house. You can't even live in the garage, not even on the front porch. Move out. And it's not because we hate you. It's not because we're punishing you. We're trying to protect the family and we're trying to help you understand the true nature of what you're doing. And when you leave this roof line under the umbrella of our family, you're going to find out it's hard out there. It's difficult. out. You, hopefully this would lead to repentance. If you don't do tough love, the prodigal son never returns. If dad just keeps sending checks, then he's enabling that behavior. It's a codependent relationship. It's, it's not right, not healthy. It's not loving. And so the loving thing to do is make them leave. Tough love is devastating for a home. It is painful in a church. And so when you see that sort of thing happening, pray for the people involved because they're having a hard time and it's terribly messy. But it's this, this to be sure, it's for the sake of the brother. It, it's for the sake of the other brothers and sisters as well. It's also for the sake of Christ. We do this sort of thing for the sake of Christ. It, we've read this before, but it says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sanctified. So let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with an old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but rather unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he's saying this, you need to treat sin like sin treated Jesus Christ. You guys are boasting about the very thing that cost Jesus his life, this painful execution, and you're kind of celebrating that. You should be treating sin the way sin treated Jesus Christ. You need to be angry at that. And the last reason, he says, is for the sake of the outside world. It's a little bit long, but let me explain. The way the world even knows what Jesus is like, it's not, I don't think they read their Bibles, they look at the church and they watch, watch the church and say, well, if I'm attracted to the church, I'll, I'll be attracted to Jesus. If I'm not attracted to the church, right? So here's what Paul says about outsiders looking in. I wrote to you my, my letter not to associate, this is a former letter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate uh, with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you, you, since, since then, you would need to go out of the world itself. 
No, 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 but verse 11, no. But now I'm writing you that you do not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And then he, he clarifies, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It, it's, it's not, is it not those that are inside the church that I should be judging? Yeah, God judges those outside. So purge evil from those that are among you. These five sentences could be a seminar on how we're supposed to live as Christians in the culture. And as clear as they are, it's as though we do the exact opposite of what's of what's being told in these sentences. I mean, one of the things he says, to, you're supposed to stay in the culture. He jokingly says, if you try, if you could even try to, to not be around people that were immoral in his whole list of immorality, you'd have to leave the planet. I don't want you to leave the planet. There's no such thing as an isolated Christian group over here just waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not even remotely biblical. And then furthermore, he says, you shouldn't even judge those people that are outside the church. I mean, come on. I mean, they are acting and they have the same values that I have and that you had before you knew about what was revealed in the Bible. Good grief, we have the answer key. No wonder we know, right? And not only do we know what's right and wrong, but we have the spirit of God that gives us insight and the power to overcome sin. So we don't judge the people outside the world. That's not even fair. But judge the people inside the church and if necessary, put them in time out until they can learn that they can't live that way and say you're part of this family. Because look, the church is supposed to look different than the world. They're supposed to like, they're supposed to be the cheese without the mold on it, the unleavened bread. That, that's, that's not sinful. If the church, this church, the Corinthian church, if the church is proud of their sin or their famous person that's famously sinning, the culture outside of the church says, well, they're, they're no better than me or us. As a matter of fact, they're worse than us. I mean, I'd, I'd kick Elizabeth Taylor off our bridge team. I mean, you can't just go sleeping with other husbands, right? So Paul's saying, you're, you're, it's a, you're a terrible witness to the world in the way you, practice, you don't practice church restoration or church discipline. Those are the four reasons. Four plus one. I told you there's another one. This one. Mm. Why go through the pain, the anguish of the process, the misunderstandings, the accusations to be involved in church restoration? Why do that? Just look the other way. Just shrug your shoulders. Here's why you do it. That's where Jesus is. He's in the mess. That's where Jesus' presence is obvious. He says so. In Matthew chapter 18, after he lists the four or five steps you go through to get to that place, and you're wondering, why should I do this? I'm exhausted already. I can't believe what I'm getting into. He says this, and wherever two or three are gathered in my name to do these things, there I am among you. I'm asking you to do this. No, I'm telling you to do this. And I know how difficult it is in a family. I know how torturous it is to do with friendships, if they're real, true friendships. I know how exhausting and painful it can be in a church. But if you do that, I'll be there. You want to be with Jesus? 
This is where it happens in real friendships. He says, I'm there in that heartbreak. I've been heartbroken. I've been there in false repentances. And Jesus is, is, is with us when that happens. When we get accused of being the bully because they're playing the victim, Jesus says, I'm there in that. I've been accused falsely of things. Part of this, by the way, is it's expensive. That's why it's great to be in a church. When someone, particularly in domestic violence, this church picks up expenses, sometimes legal, sometimes social workers, sometimes rent and food. We're gonna try to make this thing happen. I know what it's like to pick up somebody else's expenses when it's not my fault. Jesus says, I'm there. That's what it's like. You wanna be with Jesus? You wanna be here then. You want to do Matthew 18 and you want to be 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because he says this, it's all worth it. You're going to know I'm with you. Grace, do you want to be a church where Jesus is? I do. And that's why we do this. Not because it's easy, but it's commanded and his presence is made obvious to us. The grieving and the loss like like at a funeral. It's supposed to weigh us down and we're not supposed to say, just leave them alone. We got to do tough love. And I, w- I want you to know just from kind of a ch- inside, you know, the church, this is the single hardest thing that the leadership is involved in any given month. And particularly the elders, when it gets to that level of high handed sin, and the accusations are flying and all the go- everybody else gets to gossip, but the people in leadership don't because we're going to follow the Bible. And we have found this, that the reason our elders are older, if you look compared to sometimes other church, the reason our elders are older is because of this application. Because you have to, in some times, unless you're in like counseling, you have to understand tough love and the power of it and the goodness of it. it it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an application of a simple bumper sticker. Uh, uh, young parents write books on parenting. Old parents write books on prayer. When you get to a certain age, after teenagers or around, you start realizing the life, life isn't cause effect and there are no simple answers and things don't always work out even if you play by the rules. And so, Elders, this is what wears them down. This is what breaks them. This is what hurts them the deepest is an expression of this. But you know what? We'll do this because this is where Jesus is. When two or three are you, you guys are doing this in agreement, I'll be there. Grace, we're tr- what we do here is it's simple. We're trying to provide a safe place for everyone to become like Christ in all of life. A safe place without bullies, where everyone can become like Christ in all of life. We see this, we see this in other venues. If, if, you, if you go to a martial arts gym, right, I mean, with full contact, then the job description of the gym owner is to make sure that it's safe. It's a safe place to practice. When it happens once a quarter, some big bully, you know, muscle head comes in and starts busting people up, and then the owner will come over and say, stop doing that. This needs to be a safe place. And like doesn't learn and has another conversation. The third time, usually the owner will come in and say, well, you know what? I think you've just earned a free lesson. Usually just lasts about three minutes. And the guy gets his clock cleaned and humiliated in front of the rest of the guys. And then he just says, here's what we're trying to do here. 
I just want to provide a safe place where people can learn how to choke their friends unconscious <laughs> in a gentle way. And it's not just a great analogy, but you understand. It's a fourth grade teacher on a playground. If she doesn't take care of the bully, the other kids are going to just leave the school. That's, that's, that's how it works. You treat sin the way sin treats you. It is ruthless and is out to kill you. So treat it ruthlessly like it's out to kill you. And so the application is, is straightforward. We're trying to provide a safe place where everyone who wants to is safe to become like Christ in all of life. Do you want to do that? If you do, we'd love for you to consider joining our church and not just joining the church and not just attending, you know, on a, the, big, the big events, but like getting involved in the relationships in our small groups, in our adult classes or, you know, the, the youth group so that you end up having relationships that are so intertwined that when you go off the rails and we all go off the rails, then you have people saying, you know, you can only go so far before I'm going to step in and talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. And if that doesn't work, it'll be three-on-one. And if that doesn't work, we'll get some leadership involved. But we're going to only let you shake your hand at God for so long because it's destroying your life. It's destroying the community. And it is grieving the soul of God. And we can't let you do that. Don't you want to be in that kind of a relationship? where your friends are your bumper guards. And we have places to help you, like Celebrate Recovery, or, or, or just groups of people that are overcoming, you know, habitual sin. The invitation is join a good, healthy church and get involved deeply in a good, healthy church. There's one I have in mind. It's got grace written right on the side of the building. Come and join us. Get connected. Go to the next step. Make a deep friend. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful uh, that though there's a lot of bad endings on some of these stories at this church, we have some stories where people repented and they came around. I'm glad, Lord, that we would be courageous enough to do these things that we're commanded to do and not just skip over a chapter or red letters that you clearly stated. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us understand the need for community, a community that will protect us from ourselves and from our passions and from our being part of this world and not living with a transformed mind, just jumping on. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us hate sin the way sin hates us, and that we would love the purity of the bride the church, and we do our part to make her holy, at least the one on this hill. Lord, I'd ask that we would be a lighthouse to people that are afraid of the dark, and we'd be a means of showing that there's a different way, and it is radically different. It's fun, it's exciting, and it's safe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.